Hello, and welcome to this episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. I'm Catherine Troyer, and I'm so excited that once again I get to be joined by Tony Tresca. Hey there. This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic, as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so excited to have you join us today for our discussion on 2022's Barbarian. I'm really excited that we're doing an episode on this film because I've been wanting to talk to you about this film since I saw it in theater. And you said something that I think is it's the only way that one can experience Barbarian is that you just can't know anything going in so that you can be really surprised by the places it goes that you just did not anticipate it going. Yes, this film was a hot topic in my friend group as well. I had, as well as you, had been mm-hmm. recommending it since you saw it over the summer. But the the summer was a fairly busy time for me. Yeah, just a between little. Getting ready for a play as well as getting ready to move. <laughs> no biggies. Little things. Little, little, little things. So I missed it over the summer. But this podcast was a great, great excuse to sit down and watch it for free on HBO Max. So I guess it's not for free. You do indeed have to pay for an HBO Max subscription. Don't get any ideas. But I sat down and I was really surprised by it. I had seen the trailer um, when it first came out in theaters um, or like online or something. And so I knew the premise, which I guess I'll just jump into kind of yeah, the plot, do it. which is that this woman finds out that the Airbnb that she had booked with has, is double booked with this other man. Which in and of itself right there is a that was a pretty intriguing horror it premise. Is. And so uh, that is kind of what I expected the movie to be. <laughs> Me too. So I had seen part of the trailer. You know that I stopped watching trailers about halfway through them because I just don't want to see the one jump scare that's like, you know, like the thing that holds it all together that they'll just throw in the trailer because they want to ruin it. So I've stopped watching trailers, even though I love trailers so much. But I had seen the first part, right, where she knocks on the door and he's like, no, this is my place. And I think you're absolutely correct that what's so great about this is that that unto itself is a really frightening concept. And it's a very pertinent one, right? It's a very relevant one, considering that we live in an age of Airbnb things happening, you know, and you always hear sort of horror stories. I mean, Um, no, for real, that's a this this is real life horror. The cameras that are installed that people have found in Airbnbs. The kind of just like people who will show up in the middle, owners who will show up in the middle of the night to demand things of the people who are staying there, people who have had people break in while they're staying at Airbnbs. There's a whole lot of real life stuff that, you know, if you if you want to be afraid of it, it there's you don't have to go looking very far. Well, and one of the important elements of this particular film, that's another thing about Airbnbs, as opposed to, say, hotels is that, you know, the, the place she's staying is is in a neighborhood that's gone to ruin, right? And right. Uh, it's, it's just the, her it's Detroit, the right? Detroit neighborhood of Brightmore. Yes. And we see that, you know, the price that she pays for having 
gone somewhere she could afford to stay, which is in the middle of nowhere in that, you know, like there's just that element of at a hotel, we often stay in a room next to a room of strangers, right? That's how hotels are organized. But because you feel like you're not isolated, uh, there's that element. And I have to say that the decision to cast Bill Skarsgård as this man that Tess, played by Georgina Campbell, you know, stumbles upon is a perfect, perfect choice for both raising our fears, because we've seen him in other things where he's doing horror-y things. Of course, Pennywise is the first thing that comes to mind. But also, like... A lot of indie stuff, too. Yes, yes. But he's also not technically on the surface someone that should, quote, raise flags, other than the fact that he's a very tall man, right? Like, like he looks as harmless as, as someone might be able to look, considering that I don't think I would ever have done what Tess did, right? That's interesting that you use that expression, raise flags, because I was reading about the writing process by the writer-director, Zach Krieger, and he mentioned that in when his initial inspiration for writing this for writing the script was he was like i just wanted to write a scenario that raised as many subtle red flags as possible but that you would believe that people would just kind of push through anyway and so he went in kind of writing the script kind of blind he was just like i he took the adopted the philosophy that if he was surprising himself that hmm. the audience would always be surprised by what was going to happen next. And about 40 minutes into oh my about 40-ish pages into the writing process, he was worried that the script was getting too predictable. And so he was he was like, I gotta, he just followed that philosophy all the way through of, I've got to keep surprising myself as I'm writing it. And that's kind of how we got Barbarian. <laughs> that explains so much because that explains why for the first time in a very long time, I watched a film and wasn't able to predict the beats, right? Like yes. when very much a spoiler alert, but again, you shouldn't probably be listening to this episode unless you're prepared for that. Um, <laughs> when when Skarsgård's character dies, I was like, what? <laughs> like it was so unexpected to me because I, I just, I, you know? That was super shocking in a way that, you know, you don't, I we watch a lot of horror. We do. It's kind of hard to surprise us. We've seen a lot of the tropes done over and over again. Yes. Uh, we know that it's pretty rare that unless you're a Scream movie, you don't cast a big actor and then kill them off. Like, yeah, yeah. Until the very end. Like, you got to keep your moneymaker around. But the film kind of like does this handbrake turn and then introduces Justin Long's character. Yes. Who goes on a real journey as well. It's a very tonally it starts very different. It's also an equally horrifying whole thing that's going down there. We don't give it any information other than that, that he's being accused of raping somebody, which is, oh interestingly enough, the situation that had happened in the house all those years ago back in the eighties that had created this problem. And before we jump that far, I want to jump back to, to something you said about a decision made by the writer-director, which, by the way, this is his first full-length feature That's film. Right. It's like, yeah. for you, I sure wish that I could be as successful with my first full-length feature film. But Although he is, uh, he is, of course, from, it would be a shame not to mention his comedy background. He's been years, uh, he did 
in some work particularly probably the thing that if anybody if you would know him from he was from the whitest kids you know which was a oh new yeah york yeah new york city based comedy troupe and then he also did some other like sitcom-y stuff but this is his first creative endeavor and it's very it's shockingly it's like impressively good and i i'm glad you mentioned his comedy background because you know that I increasingly feel that like every horror writer should have to learn how to write comedy because the relationship between the two is just so important. And this film does such a good job of being funny. You've either got to come from a comedy background or or a pornographic background. (laughs) These are the requirements. One or the other. Now, if you could come from both, right, then you'd win like the trifecta. This is of course referencing uh, the, the, the theory that Horror and comedy and horror all are basically stem from the same source. Yeah, they're all what's called body genres, right? Because each one of them evokes a physical, visceral response, be that laughter, um, screams, or, you know, sexual release, right? Absolutely. I gotta say, this film was pretty good at releasing all of those in moments. Yeah, (laughs) yes. But I want to go back to the part that you mentioned about about Krieger saying that he wanted to have these subtle red flags that were subtle enough that this character of Tess could push through. Because I started by saying, you know, I would never have spent the night. That's not actually something that I can say without being in that situation because she's <laughs> she doesn't have anywhere else to sleep. She's in dire straits. She has to have this job interview. And there was a time that when I was like 16 and I went to, to Europe for a summer program, came back, and the there was an airline issue, and then I got together with um, some of the other people on the plane. It was originally supposed to be several of us. It ended up being me and just this guy, and we drove to try to find a hotel. And you know, the whole time I was wondering and worrying about stranger danger. But at some point, also like you can't always live your life like you know it's going to end up like a horror movie. And I think that's important that we see that you know it's in some ways easy to judge Tess's decisions, but in other ways it's really hard because it's it is a realistic situation. It does make sense why she's having to say yes to things that again the rest of us wouldn't say yes to. And then I think it's an interesting bit of writing that Krieger does. I guess it comes from that surprising himself that the ultimate like monster source of horror that the film asserts doesn't actually come from that decision for her to enter with Bill Skarsgård's character. It comes Mm -hmm. from a separate entity, from a separate encounter, and a separate bad thing that's happened in this space. So in theory, like whether or not this other guy was here, this door to the basement would still be here. Exactly. And at no point in the film is he, you know, is is Keith Skarsgård's character like a bad yeah. guy, which was, again, I think a really like unexpected decision because I kept waiting for him to somehow, much like Justin Long's character, right, somehow just be low key at the very least, low key icky. Um, yeah. But then, you know, he, he gets killed and you're like, oh, so much has happened. I want to go back because there's some really amazing cinematic decisions that are made with Tess's like investigation and finding the tunnel, right? Yeah. Um, there's some beautiful cinematography with yeah. like her using the the mirror to create the light source. It's just like, again, really great to see and so very unexpected. We've seen versions of people deciding to investigate things maybe they shouldn't, but I don't think I've ever seen it visually depicted quite this way. And that was a very intense and stressful scene, despite the fact that not much was happening. I want to point out some fantastic reporting that was done by Ben Gora over by Ryan Scott, who got this 
interview with the director of photography, Zachary Kupperstein. And he kind of, he talked about everything you just talked, you just mentioned there, and specifically this low light approach that they pulled off during the tunnel sequences. And it was interesting. He re- director of photography actually referenced two other filmmakers by name that he used as inspirations for building the two worlds of the film, the upstairs of the house and the horrors below. So he says, and I quote the director of photography here, the upstairs is built in a Fincher-esque world. That's referencing David Fincher. So a lot of precise camera movement, a little bit of, of hazy lighting. I want the camera operating to feel invisible. When we get downstairs, it's a little bit more aggressive. Using wider lenses, fast camera movement, a little bit more crazy, like Sam Raimi. Mm. That ties in nicely to, so there's not a lot of scholarship that's like academic scholarship yet because of just how long it takes to publish scholarship. And so for a film that came out in 2022, it'd be a really fast turnaround, although I'm pretty sure we'll start having stuff in the next little bit. But there are a a number of articles like the Fangoria um, and, and an article by Slate that are pointing out just how cognizant our filmmakers, all of them, were in in being aware of the genre. Uh, there's a, a piece by Sam Adams in Slate called Barbarian is the Smartest, Funniest Horror Movie in Ages. And what Adams argues is, is that, you know, it's very clear that they're aware of the tropes of horror and how to manipulate them, both for scares, but also for laughs, right? And and just the fact that, like, that phrase, the smartest, I think is is really key in that this is a film that is very aware of why it's doing the things it's doing and who it's referencing, right? Like, I love that fact that that he can tell you that the above ground and below ground are different worlds, so they have to have different sort of sources of inspiration in terms of the cinematography. That's that's brilliant. Yeah, I think that as soon as I really like that the headline that the I guess that you just referenced there in talking and acknowledging also the the comedy that arises from it as well. I think his com- the comedy background from the writer director really comes through particularly in a lot of the like gross out moments oh my gosh. that the film yes. does as well, which are both like disgusting, but also just a little bit like silly as well. Yeah. Having seen this in theater, it was interesting because like there were definitely moments that you were like, I want to laugh. I feel like I should laugh, but it also feels like I'm going to be judged when I'm laughing. Um, You know, and a lot of the scenes are with the mother where you're like, this is hysterical because yeah. it's so uncomfortable. But the audience was, most of the audience wasn't laughing except for me and my partner. And it was one of those moments that then I was like drawn to like, is there something wrong with me or them that, that is it there something wrong with them that they're not laughing or me that I am? But you're absolutely correct that there's so much that's like, you just can't help but laugh because it's so ridiculous, yeah, um, even if it's I, really gross. I'm glad I watched this at my by myself in my house because I could just chuckle away and be like, this is very silly. This is yes. not like, and this is, it's silly, but it's also so scary because I'm like, I yes. would obviously not want this to be happening to me, but having to see it played out and filmed is just all itself a little bit yeah. absurd. Like when mother is, is rocking AJ yeah. and then trying to get her, him to, to drink from the hairy nippled bottle, you know, right. like you just like the fact that, you know, they knew it was ridiculous, right? There's a sense that I think you can get in a film based on how it's crafted, whether or not this is a joke that, that the filmmakers want you to be in on, 
or it's something that they want you to take seriously that you just can't. And it's very clear throughout this film that they know how ridiculous this is and they're going to go there anyway. And then they're going to go somewhere else that you didn't expect. That's also super, super ridiculous, right? Yeah. But what I love about this film is that in between these moments of ridiculousness and and just things like uncanniness, right? I think it's it's interesting and important to know that, you know, the, the mother figure is, is played by Matthew Patrick Davis, right? So he feels very uncanny in his performance of the mother, even though there's these things in there. There's some really actually horrifying elements to this film. And I think a lot of them are especially horrifying for me as a as a woman that you may also find them horrifying. But I, I think about like one of the best moments in the film is the difference between how Tess feels about having stumbled upon an underground lair versus how AJ feels. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Like Tess AJ. is like, this is not okay. And AJ is like getting out his ruler, which was a hysterical scene. Yeah. Um, you know, I, like I measuring mean, it. It might increase the property value. So I love Justin Long. He he cracks I, me up in everything he that he's a, in. Yeah, he's a great actor. They're good character great character actor. He was really good, really fun in this. And I mean he turns this character who is like a douchebag oh, into absolutely. someone who is like God, vaguely, vaguely sympathetic until the yeah. very, right up until the very yes. end when he like betrays, and betrays her. In doing that, this film is, allows us to have so have this conversation about the power of of gaslighting, right? Because like again, you're like you're seeing this character and you're like, I know he's not a good guy, but he keeps saying he's a good guy. Maybe, maybe I'm just reading the situation wrong. Maybe, you know, I'm interpreting things incorrectly. Um, and of course the police out and out accuse Tess of, you know, making stuff up and they think that she's right. on and drugs and much you know, all this stuff. Yes, yes. Which is absolutely whereas, horrifying. With, whereas I think it's a very interesting contrast that when they are breaking the news to AJ's character that he's this actress who he's working mm-hmm. with has, has accused him of rape. They're all there using words accused, alleged. They're yes. like, they're very careful around it. They're like, we don't know anything. Don't proceed. Don't calm down. We don't actually know it. This is all very fine. Whereas with Tess, immediately it's like, we'll put you away. Yes. Stop being hysterical. Stop being hysterical. Absolutely. Do you want interesting fun fact about the filmmaking process? Do you yes. want to know who the first choice to play AJ was? Yes. So the original vision for the character was more of like a dude bro himbo beefcake. Oh. Direct quotes from Krieger there. Uh, so and the original choice for the role was Zach Efron. Oh, that's interesting. Of high school musical seventeen yes. again fame. Um, yes. However, who he recently t- played the father in the most recent uh, adaptation of Firestarter, and Firestarter. I was like, yes. I'm not okay with this reminder that like this person that's famed for being a high schooler in High School Musical is now playing father figures. I, like, I'm not keen on that passage of time. But yes, that oh, that would have been interesting. <laughs> Do you know why they went a different direction? Uh, yes, because yes. Uh, when they offered the role to Zac Efron, he turned it down. I oh. guess it, he didn't either, maybe because of his work on uh, in Firestarter, he, maybe he didn't enjoy it very much, or he just didn't feel like this character would fit his image or brand. But for whatever reason, the Efron team decided they didn't want to do this. So Krieger kind of reworked the character to take it in a different direction and cast Justin Long for his warm, disarming, charming, 
lovable presence on screen, which he thought might end up making the character a little bit more relatable to the audience, despite like his kind of like overall terribleness. I think it worked out for the best. Like I'm, I'm actually a fan of Zac Efron's performances and a lot of stuff. He's obviously as well. able to do comedy um, as well as as more serious stuff. But I, I do think that there's something really disarming that we needed in Justin Long that I'm not sure Zac Efron would have ever been able to give us. I, I think with Zac Efron, you would have been like, his performance, I think probably would have read as being a little bit more like, yeah, I think this guy definitely raped her. Like, yeah. Uh, like, yeah, like, I think that there is, and like, that would have been, and I'm use, I hesitate to use this word around it, but like, quote unquote, the joke of that character was that like he so clearly did do it and yes. he's like so bad at like covering it up which so I think it's more interesting and he uses the word uh he uses the word engaging or mm-hmm. but I, I think real realistic or relatable would also be a good word to yes. use. Because you're right, even though he comes across always as a little douchey, in part because of the rhetoric that's used, alleged things like that, and in part because AJ describes himself, you know, as this real advocate for women and and describes himself as a good guy, which should always be in some ways a red flag by the end of the film, right? We need to kind of be surprised that even if we're even as we're not surprised by AJ's final actions, right? Because he keeps almost being a good guy. Uh, He really does. Yeah. Yeah. Until push end, comes to shove. Right. Literally. In, Literally. In <laughs> <laughs> that's a great, that's the kind of pun I would usually I make. know. I did, I, I, well, it was accidental, so I must just be channeling my inner Tony. I also just appreciate this film's sort of triptych feel, right? That it's, you know, films often, inevitably, stories often, inevitably have three acts. But this film has... It's like it's like a, a triptych, right? So you know when you think about art and you think about triptych, triptychs. If you th- if you often think about them, you're thinking about you know like three panels that are connected in theme and and that you want to be able to see all three of them together. But each one is a distinct sort of creature unto itself. And I don't know if we build triptychs as much as we used to, but they used to like be done a lot in, in medieval and Renaissance times, and, and they would literally be sort of displayed together. But you could view each panel on its own, and and I felt that way about this film, which which in other films would just feel sloppy or like they shoved three films together. But instead, it it kind of feels you know we have the first story, and then we have the second story, which is presenting us with some of the same themes: gaslighting, how do you make decisions in hard times but we're getting it from AJ's perspective instead of Tess's. And then of course, in this third one, we, that's when we get the flashback and we get to see, you know, just truly what's the horror here, but also, is it the guy? It is the guy that obviously kidnaps and impregnates women, but it's also the AJ's of the world. It's also the police who are unwilling to listen in the world, right? Like it's, it's these other people. And I just thought that was really, really well done in a way. I don't remember the last time I've seen a film do that that this effectively and such a like i, I feel like subversion is in right now yes and, like i i call it let's call it the ryan johnson effect the, <laughs> the kind of like and i don't mean that it's like a, this in any kind of bad way but it is just like this kind of like need to turn audiences flip audiences expectations on their head like this idea that audiences i guess like have short attention spans. And so in order to keep them engaged within storytelling, if they're not like utterly shocked the whole time, like it's bad. I feel like a mm-hmm. lot of times 
it just comes off as like lazy writing. Like it just comes off as shock value for shock value's sake. But I feel like this story really nice. It's like an I like your your metaphor. What was that called? A the, triptych. That art, a triptych. Mm-hmm. And I think another interesting way to like maybe describe it would be like a triptych or like a Russian nesting doll, because the story really does kind of like at every layer that it kind of peels back of itself. It's still the same story, but it's showing it from a different angle, a little bit deeper. Yeah. And you get a little bit different perspective of it. Yeah. Adams uh, in the, the slate piece says that barbarian script thinks through its problems as much as it needs to and no more. It knows that horror and logic are enemies at heart. And the trick is to make us desire the knowledge of what's behind the door more than we care why it's opened. And then he says its best trick is that there's more than one door. And I think that's, you know, just we're constantly going literally, but also, of course, figuratively through through doors. And I think that's just interesting. And I, and I think it's really this is an example of just like smart marketing for a film. And I think how you do have to acknowledge that something about the Ryan Johnson effect that I think is good that it is being pointed out is mm-hmm. like this idea that like audiences do expect something whenever they come into it. It's fairly yes. rare that you will enter into a film space or something without any like understanding of what that is usually Mm -hmm. if you've turned it on you have some reason for having gotten to that you have to put in a bit of effort or work to get there and i think that this film's marketing where after about 40 minutes you utterly have no idea where it could possibly be going just like krieger did in the writing process himself it it mimics that like i think that it uses that to its utter advantage to actually keep the audience on its toes in a way that is that feels like it doesn't feel cheap no it doesn't and i i think that one of the really effective things that he offers us is the sort of approach of three very different people because keith also experiences the horror although you know admittedly for a much shorter period of time but like three different people's versions of how they would approach and encounter the same situation you know because keith goes down into the tunnels he regrets it but he does go down there right away tess really deliberates for a long time and she's the you know she's the one that is like i don't think this is a good idea and again there's that scene where Tess looks at the dog cages and she's like, what the F is happening? Yeah. Justin Long looks at the at the cages and he moves them so he can actually pull out his tape measure and measure some more. And getting to see, you know, like how would different people respond to the same situation really allows us to to just think about this film spot from so many different angles. And that's kind of where Adams ends his review uh, of of the film. And I, I think it's worth reading his, his final paragraph. So he says, it's also, and I've saved this for last so as to not frighten anyone off, quite smart. Barbarian doesn't have an overriding thesis or a big statement to make because its intelligence is intuitive rather than programmatic. You can make what you like of the fact that Tess, who is Black, has come to Detroit to interview for a job with a white documentary filmmaker whose latest movie is about jazz, that the only other significant Black character in the movie is a homeless man who drags her out of the basement and warns her not to go back to that, quote, bad place, that AJ is a gentrifier as well as an accused rapist. The subtext about racism and urban renewal, toxic masculinity, Reagan-era paranoia and its ramifications in the present day stays subtext there to be mined by those who don't mind making ever so slight fools of themselves. And then he says, fortunately, you don't have to dig under its surface to think barbarians of last. And I, I do think, to go back to your phrase about the Ryan Johnson effect, you know, that's something that that those films also give us, right? The Knives Out series. Like there's layers in, again, I don't mean to make a pun off of 
the most recent one about the glass onion, but like an onion, right? You can, you can decide how many layers you want to peel off. And if you want to like stay on the surface and just kind of enjoy it for what it is, you can do that just as effectively as you can peel through the layers and, and say, you know, in all seriousness, it is not difficult to read this film as a commentary on X, but we don't have to, if you don't want to go there. And that, I don't know if I'm a good enough writer to be able to pull that off successfully consistently. Um, I think, you know, Ryan Johnson has uh, in The Knives Out. And I think that Krieger's proving, again, probably because of his comedy background, that he knows how to do that, right? How to how to both get a laugh or a scream, but also, you know, a, oh, ha, huh, sort of from the audience. Because in a way that is so rare, we were talking about this. This is a really nice contrast from our conversation in the Friday the 13th films, which, and we were talking about how they're, even despite how we were like, there's some are better than others, the characterization in those movies is so thin. They're barely, oh they're barely people at, at, like, sometimes. Whereas in this, I really do feel like every human, and even the mother character that is presented, is a very interesting, well-rounded character, and you kind of get where they're, fundamentally kind of get where they're coming from. Even if you, like, don't like that you get where they're coming from. As you're watching AJ develop and try to genderify, you're like, well, this makes sense for you. It's like the worst, dis- most disgusting choice you could make yes. in this horrifying situation. But, like, I I guess when push comes to shove, to reference your pun from earlier, that's just yeah. what you're going to do. <laughs> and even giving us that flashback on Frank, right? So in the 1980s. Yes. And letting us see, I mean, first off, just cinematically reminding us of how Detroit once was, you know, the a sort of a thriving center. And, and now it is repeatedly the source of horror films. But like we even get to see, I don't think anyone sympathizes or empathizes with Frank, but he's also a, a fully developed character. So yeah. that by the time AJ finds him in the basement, you know, he's not just He's both a caricature, this over-the-top ridiculous figure who's built a basement tunnel to keep his women, but he's also someone that we can understand the nuances of better. And that's, like you said, and he does that with the mother as well, and knows when you can't, when you've reached a point where you just have to also then be absurd, right? Because of course, like Jason and Michael Myers uh, from the Halloween series, you're not really ever supposed to laugh at their ridiculous antics the humor comes from, you know, other characters. But you're definitely supposed to laugh at the mother yeah, and, and her ridiculousness. So. And that, I think, also makes them more complete of characters, right? Because we're having multiple reactions to them. And I think it makes the final moments of the film all the more satisfying when, like, it, again, it's all very subtle. Like, it's not in-your-face morals. It's just, like, actions have consequences. Yes. And, like, AJ... <laughs> and Tess, there's nothing that says that that same situation where Tess is like recognized by mother and spared by her, giving them the moment to have the upper hand couldn't have happened with AJ there. But because AJ was a huge a-hole and pushed her off this yeah. water tower, yeah. it's a water tower. Uh, yes, it is. Pushed her off tower. this water tower. This gives, she falls to the ground, have, gives them that moment to have their connection. He now has to die. And then she can still manage to walk away from that. But before he dies, that moment when he finds her after he's pushed her off. And he's trying to justify it. He's trying to justify it to her. I mean, again, this is a place where I can't envision, not that he couldn't do it. I just can't envision Zac Efron communicating that scene the way Justin Long did. Because like you can see in, in Long's performance that AJ 
still literally believes he's a good guy. Like he's not just saying it, you know, to like, her, like, make her believe it, he also truly he's like he's i like, didn't it is mean the to only way it's, it was yeah. the only way we couldn't possibly have come no boat gone away yeah. from her in that situation i had I, I had to do it it was what was best but it was just yeah and again it's one of those scenes where you know i'm laughing in the theater but not everyone is because i don't know if everyone maybe they didn't find it funny or maybe they didn't appreciate what the humor was trying to do in that moment but like it's just so easy to laugh because if you don't laugh you're going to scream in frustration because i think we've all encountered personally or you know through anecdote those people that that often label themselves as the good guy right and then do these increasingly horrendous things and you're like how can you still believe this about yourself and the mother saves Tess, right like and we know that she is herself a victim and that's also interesting to be reminded that even as we may find this mother really disgusting is it fair right like she has to die for Tess to live but like it's super not fair that she had to become this monstrous creature in the first place you know she did nothing to deserve that and that's also a really i think just important layer that you don't have to pay attention to but that's really worth paying attention to and how quickly Tess is still willing to disregard that in the way of her being able to move on and kind of, it's sim- it's it's similar if you want to read into it, which I'm kind of, I kind of been interested mm-hmm. in it being connected to that theme of like gentrification and like the degradation of the neighborhood and things being left behind. I think it's a continuation of that. It's now because it's ugly, because it's run down. She's not like doesn't look like the rest of how risk proper society wants it to look. Easier to leave behind. She has to do it for her own survival so that she can have a better job in Detroit. A better yeah. area and leave that behind she's got to move on and now she has no baggage tying her and i don't think that makes her a bad person but i think that's what's so interesting and fascinating about all of these characters is that like you can you can try to label them with like a moral compass and whatnot but i think fundamentally at the end of the day they're just responding as best they could to these insane situations and there are really interesting consequences because of that I think that's a lovely point because you're so correct that so much of horror is trying to impose some sort of moral compass, right? These people, these teenagers engaged in sex and drugs, therefore they obviously must be punished. These characters were good, therefore they deserve to live. And this film is really like, there's no judgment cast. It's just like, this is what they did. We're just going to see what they do. And I mean, I, I think they're casting, he's casting judgment, you know, uh, Krieger and, and crew on Frank, right? I think certainly to some degree on AJ. And on AJ. But, but like, you know, our you're boy right. Keith, Tess is not, and Keith, yeah. If they do, Keith does pretty much nothing wrong, but that doesn't save him in any way. And also really also doesn't save him from not being a product of suspicion by the audience the entire time he's on screen which is also interesting commentary that you can read into if you want to yes as well yeah yeah so there's just a lot of really good stuff here to unpack and i think your your idea about tessa's as a metaphor there at the end for identifiers is also really interesting because you're correct that you know she she does something that i don't think anyone in her shoes probably wouldn't similarly do but it's easy when you're not in that situation to be like i would have you know spared her whatever just like many people are like i would never engage in gentrification i would never do this if i was super wealthy it's like well actually you can't make those decisions until you're in the moment because you'll realize that Mm -hmm. most of us end up making 
those decisions, right? There's a reason that most very wealthy people have certain shared habits that most people, neighborhoods end up being gentrified, right? There's just these things that we're going to kind of do to survive, right? Or to because we think we have to survive. So this is a very rich text and it did very well. Honestly, oh my overall, gosh. it was the most, it was a largely domestic release, but against a 4.5 million budget, it did end up, it ended up making $45 million before going to streaming and earning money there. And now it's available for also rental, but also on yeah. HBO Max as well. Uh, I mean, that's can you believe- a huge profit, especially considering that you and I've talked about that, you know, lately films are really struggling to even break even with their budget and and this film again illustrated the power of just simplifying budget costs so that you can possibly make money which is at some point a thing that has to happen if you want to keep making films congratulations disney one of your acquired studios does it again But unfortunately, it doesn't seem like this film is going to be getting a sequel. I almost said unfortunately, but I do think it just stands on its own as like I a really nice solo own. text. Peter talked about it. He's, there's a big twist around the 40 minute mark. It's my favorite moment. Uh, Barbarian 2, not for me. Never say never, but I doubt it. Not interested in a prequel either, because he said he th- I would have to focus on the story of Frank. Yeah, And he says, I quote, I'm personally not interested in making a movie about a man who abducts women. <laughs> I'm Good. more ha- than happy to have that be a setting for another story like Barbarian is, but I don't want to watch that guy for an hour and a half. So I think that's a fairly good call. I think he that's does, a great call. Uh, he does seem to have another movie uh, in development already. It was the subject of an eight-figure bidding war between studios. Ooh. New Line ended up winning... So look forward to Weapons by Krieger. That's the title of the film. It's a horror epic set to hit theaters eventually. We, as always, would love to hear your thoughts about this film, considering that most people who were critically sort of analyzing the film seem to like it. It doesn't always have it. I mean, like in some scores, it's it's got like a three out of five. You know, I think it I think it was uh, well received critically, but I don't know if it was as well received audience wise. So we would love to hear from you. Like, what did you think? What are your thoughts? Tony, if they want to share with us their feelings, how would they do so? Check out our social medias, which are in the description or our emails as well. Also, share our podcast with your friends. Give us a rating or review wherever you get your podcast. That really helps us get the word out. And we just love hearing from you. So, yes. Yeah, we just we do. <laughs> just love hearing from you. And we are going to go where in our next episode? We are continuing our journey through the Friday the 13th franchise. We're on to part seven from 1988, The New Blood. I'm very, very bothered by the use of that article there, The New Blood. So I I hope that the film explains why it's The New Blood, not just New Blood, but you can join us for that investigation next. There will only be one New (laughs) Blood. Stop it. I don't like it. (laughs) The New Blood. That's right. Thank you so much for listening to our nightmares. And have a spooktacular day. Bye.